you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. As uh, we come to this chapter this morning, we'll be considering it under, under three main headings. Uh, first, verses 1 through 8, promise fulfilled. Promise fulfilled. Secondly, in uh, verses 9 through 21, we'll see Hagar and Ishmael sent away. Hagar and Ishmael sent away. And then finally, in verses 22 through 34, we will see uh, civil agreements with potentially pagan authorities. Civil agreements with potentially pagan authorities. So first of all, verses 1 through 8, let's, let's look to the text there. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah, as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And so here in Genesis 21, we have the historical account of God's promises being fulfilled. Specifically, this promise to Abraham with respect to the birth of a son. And this is where the narrative of Genesis has been pointing from at least Genesis 12 or perhaps even Genesis 11.30 where Sarah's barrenness is first mentioned. It's all been pointing ahead to this event here, verse 21, or chapter 21, the, the birth of Isaac. The promise of Genesis 12.2 that the Lord would make Abraham a great nation, the promise of Chapter 13, verse 16, that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Or the promise of 15, verses 4 and 5, that Abraham's heir would come forth from his own body. And that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. The promise of chapter 17, verses 15 through 21, that the child of promise would be born to Sarah within the coming year. And then that promise reiterated in chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. All of that was pointing ahead to what we see here in chapter 21. Now, this promise was 25 years in being fulfilled. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran in obedience to the Lord's command. Abraham is 100 years old now. Abraham's faith was not always strong. Sometimes he acted in unbelief and attempted to bring about the fulfillment of the promise in a way other than that which God intended. Sometimes Abraham sinned along the way. But through it all, the Lord proved faithful. And verses 1 and 2 draw our attention to the faithfulness of the Lord in the way that they speak. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah, 
as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. The Lord had promised, and the Lord had fulfilled that promise. He proved faithful. And the text also shows us here the the faithfulness of Abraham on this occasion. Obviously, as seen in verse 4, he circumcised his son on the eighth day in accordance with the command that was given in chapter 17, verse 12, in the covenant of circumcision. And in verse 3, he called the name of his son Isaac. This was, of course, in accordance with the command of the Lord from back in chapter 17, verse 19. And, of course, the name is very fitting. The name Isaac means he laughs. Abraham and Sarah both laughed when they heard from the Lord that Sarah would be the mother of this child. We saw Abraham's laughter back in chapter 17, verse 17, when he fell on his face and laughed and said, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? We saw Sarah's laughter a few weeks ago in Genesis 18, 12, when she heard from one of the lips of those visitors who had come to them that she would be a mother. Now, historically, Abraham's laughter has been interpreted as a laughter of a different sort than that of Sarah's, that while Abraham's laughter is a a laughter of rejoicing or of amazement, as some of the Jewish Targums translated Genesis 17, 17, Sarah's laughter, on the other hand, has been seen as a laughter of of unbelief. And one of those same Jewish Targums translated uh, Genesis 18:12 as Sarah derided in her heart. And so while Abraham is laughing in, in wonder and amazement at what God would do, Sarah was kind of laughing in a yeah right kind of laughter. And so Isaac is a, a very fitting name for this baby boy. Both of his parents had laughed when they heard about his birth. And Sarah notice here, is no longer full of doubt, but rather full of faith and joy. And so she says there in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Her laughter has been changed from a laughter of, yeah, right, a laughter of derision to a laughter of joy at what the Lord has done for her and provided for her. Others will join in and will laugh with her and rejoice at this joyous occasion. The Lord has been kind and good to his servants, despite all of their shortcomings along the way. And her joy is mixed with wonder. She says there in verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. In other words, this is something that no one would have guessed. And yet, in the Lord's great kindness, this is exactly what happened. The Lord had brought about this thing that was literally inconceivable and seemingly impossible. But the Lord did it. And this is is what we see in Scripture, this pattern of promise and fulfillment, that the Lord promises, and then the Lord makes good on his word. And this is true even when, from a human vantage point, the odds against the fulfillment of the Lord's word seem overwhelming. Even then, the Lord fulfills his word. He had said to Abraham back in chapter 18, verse 14, "'Is anything too difficult for the Lord?' The answer is no, obviously. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. The Lord promises what he will do, and then he does it. And therefore, we can can look back in Scripture and see how this has played out again and again. We see it 
In the case of Noah, the Lord had promised that he was going to bring a flood of water upon the earth, that he was going to save Noah, establish a covenant with him, save him, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, and he did it. Even though, from a human vantage point, this seemed absurd, right? Nobody had seen a worldwide flood at that point. Nobody has ever seen one since. Yet the Lord did it, and in the midst of that flood, he saved Abraham. And we see it here in the case of Isaac against overwhelming odds, an old man and an old mother, and yet they have a son. We see it with respect to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, where the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's exactly what happened. Again and again, this is what you see in Scripture. The Lord announces what will be, and he brings it to completion. This is certainly true in what we would rightly consider to be the big events of salvation history. The flood, the promise to Abraham, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and on and on we could go. The Lord's covenant with David, the promises concerning the exile to Babylon and the return 70 years later, the promises concerning the coming of the Christ, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born from, uh, from the stump of Jesse, a descendant of David, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be crushed for our transgressions and iniquities, that he would not be abandoned to Sheol and that his body would not see corruption, thus indicating that he would rise again from the dead. And we could go on, but you see what I mean. We have this pattern of promise and fulfillment. And this holds true not only in what we would consider to be the main and major events of salvation history, but even also in the more mundane events in the lives of God's people, where God makes a promise, that promise comes true. And so in 2 Kings 7, for, uh, for instance, the, the Syrians had come and had besieged Samaria. I'm sorry, 2 Kings 6. Uh, they had come and besieged Samaria, and there was a very severe famine that had overwhelmed the city. And we were told that a donkey's head would be sold for 80 shekels of silver, and a volume of about a pint of dove's dung would be sold for five shekels of silver. And there was cannibalism taking place in the city, and all kinds of bad things like that. And yet Elisha promised the king of Israel, the word of the Lord came through Elisha to the king of Israel, and he said, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer who was there with the king said, behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said, behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And indeed that is exactly what happened. The Syrians abandoned their camp. Their camp was discovered and plundered. And indeed, two measures of barley were sold for a shekel and a measure of wheat was sold for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And that royal officer who could not believe the word of the Lord was trampled by the people in the gate. And so he saw it, but did not eat of it according to the word of the Lord. And again, it's this theme, promise and fulfillment. Promises of salvation, promises of judgment, both are fulfilled. We can look back and we can see it again and again repeatedly. And this should give us confidence and hope in regard to promises that are ours which are not yet fulfilled. Because as believers in Christ we have what Peter called, 2 Peter 1.4, precious and 
magnificent promises which are given unto us. We have, for instance, the promise, 1 Corinthians 1.8, that we will be confirmed until the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you, he also will bring it to pass. We have the promise of 1 Peter 1, 5 that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have the promise of Christ's return. The resurrection from the dead is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We have the promise of the world to come, 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The point is we have these precious and magnificent promises, but we are awaiting their fulfillment. So please be patient. Abraham waited 25 years to see the son of promise. You might be waiting longer than that to see the fulfillment of these promises in your life. We don't know when Christ will return and when the dead will be raised. It might be soon. It might be years and years before that promise will be fulfilled. And we cling to these promises concerning our sanctification and concerning our preservation by God that he will make us holy and that he'll keep us and hold us fast. And as Christians, we have some current experience of these realities, but yet at the same time, we also see the multitude of our sins. We see our weakness. We see the world continuing on as it has, and we may sometimes be tempted to join with those scoffers that Peter warns about, those who say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so you see, we have these precious and magnificent promises from God, and we should cling to them and trust that the Lord will be faithful to his word and that he will bring about what he has promised. But sometimes there are other forces at work which would seek to draw us away from placing full confidence in God for the fulfillment of these promises. Again, we see our weaknesses, we see our sins, we may question whether we will indeed be protected and kept blameless until the end, whether the Lord will complete this good work which he has begun in us. Again, we see the world continuing on and may be tempted to think, is Christ really coming again? Because it seems like everything is just going on and on as it has. We might be tempted in that light to disregard the promise of Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. But ultimately, all of this boils down to the faithfulness of God. Will God be faithful to fulfill what he has promised, or will he not? And when we find ourselves comparing our own experience and our own situation on the one hand with the promises of God on the other hand, I think this narrative here in Genesis concerning Abraham and the fulfillment of God's promises to him can be quite helpful to us. Because circumstantially, we think about Abraham and his circumstances, his situation, there were some things militating against the promise. There were some things which seemed to suggest 
maybe this will not be fulfilled, right? There were things at least that would raise their heads to the flesh of Abraham and Sarah, suggesting that this will not be, right? Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah was barren. It had been 25 years since the promise had been given, and yet, up until you get to Genesis 21, it had not yet been fulfilled. But yet, Paul tells us in Romans 4, Abraham's response to his circumstances. So in Romans 4, 18 through 21, this is, this is the window that we're given into Abraham's response. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And so on the one hand, Abraham's circumstances, we might say, were arrayed against hope. But nevertheless, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. Abraham here is a model for us in that we can and should face our circumstances. Whatever it is that seems to be militating against the promises of God. There's no sense in burying our head in the sand or sticking our fingers in our ears and trying to forget our life's circumstances. So we should face the circumstances and look at them objectively as they are and then trust the promises of God over and above and beyond whatever conclusion to which our circumstances might seem to lead us. The circumstances might lead you to think one thing. Don't think that. Think what God has said. Trust Him in His Word. And, and understand here, I'm not talking about some variety of name it and claim it, some variety of thinking where you can say, I want to get this job or this promotion or this house or this spouse, so I'm going to trust God and he will give it to me. I'm not saying anything of the kind. God may or may not give you the earthly things that you desire. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. What I am talking about, though, are the specific promises that God has given us, these great and magnificent promises which are given to us in the gospel, the promise of our redemption that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, the promise of Christ in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. With respect to these promises, we believe in hope and we trust the Lord regardless of the circumstances. He is faithful, and he will fulfill his promises. I like the words of uh, one of George Whitfield's friends, who was a pastor in England, 1700s, named William Romaine. Romaine said, When your unfaithfulness would discourage you, think of his faithfulness. Let your weakness remind you of his strength. If indeed he leave you a single moment, you will fall. But he has promised, I will never leave you. If the number and strength of your enemies make you fear lest you should perish one day at the hand of Saul, he says to you that you will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. But if you are tempted to doubt, finding your revolting heart apt to turn from the Lord, he says, I will put my fear into your heart and you shall not depart from me. 
Jeremiah 32, 40. Observe, it is his faithfulness and power, not yours, which is able to keep you. And he has covenanted to do it, and he has all power in heaven and on earth. And he has given you promise upon promise for the establishment of your faith, that you might be certain that he will love you and keep you unto the end. So the Lord fulfills his promises. And we cling to those promises in the confident expectation of their fulfillment. We have scriptural grounds to do so. We see this pattern again and again. Promise and fulfillment. The Lord is faithful. Now let's look ahead to verses 9 through 21 as we see Hagar and Ishmael sent away. Pick up reading in verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. And he gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, here we see the the final fallout between Hagar and Sarah, and the separation between Isaac and Ishmael, two sons of Abraham. Around this time when Isaac was weaned, Sarah noticed Hagar's son was mocking. Now the verb here can simply mean to play, but it can also have a darker connotation as well. And that it does in fact have this darker connotation is indicated by Paul when he says in Galatians 4.29, speaking of Isaac and Ishmael, he said, He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the flesh. To the spirit, and so there's something clearly wrong here with the behavior of Ishmael on on this occasion, and so Sarah gives Abraham some rather strong words in verse 10. She says, "Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac." Now, if we think at all about this, we can understand why we are told subsequently that Abraham was distressed. This is this is kind of upsetting. He's got two sons, Ishmael. Is just as much his son as Isaac is his son. Isaac's obviously the son of promise, but nevertheless, Ishmael is really Abraham's son, and he had 
affection for him. And he had prayed for him back in chapter 17. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But the Lord came to Abraham in this distressing situation and made the decision easier under the circumstances. The Lord said, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And so Abraham goes ahead and sends them out. Now, in the culture of the time, it seems likely that up to this point, Ishmael would have had a legal right to an inheritance from Abraham's estate. But now that Sarah has a son, she has no interest at all in having the inheritance divided between these two sons, between her own son and the son of Hagar. Sarah is the first wife. Hagar is the secondary wife or the concubine. Isaac, the son of the free woman. Ishmael, the son of the slave woman. And now that Sarah has a son, she wants this other young man gone and gone for good. And surprising as it may be to our sensitivities, the Lord actually sanctions Sarah's request, namely because through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And it seems that what Sarah envisioned here was, was also in keeping with at least some ancient legislation in this regard. And so there's an ancient Near Eastern law code known as the Lipit Ishtar Code from about the 1860s BC or so. And it stated that if a man marries a wife and she bears him a child and the child lives and a slave woman also bears a child to her master, the father shall free the slave woman and her children the children of the slave woman will not divide the estate with the children of the master. And so it seems that, uh, that what Sarah was envisioning and wanting here was, was actually kind of in keeping with this, this ancient law code. And given the status of, of Hagar and the status of Ishmael as the son of the slave woman, it seems that they could receive their freedom and be sent away from the household. And, as it were, in return for this, they would have no claim upon any inheritance coming from Abraham. And so, this is what they do. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Ishmael is not the child of the promise. Isaac is. But yet, the Lord does not abandon them completely. Right? He doesn't just let them go out into the, the desert to die there. He hears the voice of the lad. He opens Hagar's eyes to this well so that she can draw water and refill the water skin. And the angel says, I will make a great nation of him. And we read that, that God was with the lad. God was with him in regard to his temporal recovery from dehydration and his physical growth. God sustained his life. God made him a great nation as he had promised both Abraham earlier and Hagar here. God was with him in respect to these earthly and temporal things. But we have no clear evidence that the Lord was with him with respect to spiritual and eternal things. Ishmael grows up, becomes an archer. His mother takes a wife for him from Egypt. We never read of any spiritual or godly inclinations uh, coming from Ishmael. Now, it's been observed that this passage in which Hagar and Ishmael are, are driven out anticipates the account of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt in terms of the, the language that is used and in terms of some of the themes that are present. In both cases, you have slaves who are driven out into the wilderness with scarce provisions. God takes care of those who were driven out. But as one writer described the situation, 
despite the similarities, nevertheless, Hagar foreshadows Israel's pilgrimage of faith through contrast. As a maid in bondage, she flees suffering. Yet she experiences wilderness without covenant, wandering without land. She's sent out, but she's sent out without the kind of promises that the nation of Israel goes out into the wilderness with. And so this is this history of Hagar and Ishmael being cast out. But as we saw in our New Testament reading this morning, there is a spiritual lesson here which we can learn from this history. Paul says in Galatians 4.24 that this history is allegorically speaking. Now, in other words, there is an allegorical significance that we may derive from this history of Genesis 21. Now, we understand that an allegory is a story that utilizes symbols, that names and places are used to represent something else, right? Think of, think of the Pilgrim's Progress. Everybody has a name, and those names represent something. You have Christian, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, Faithful, Hopeful, Giant Despair, Vanity Fair, all of that. Now, some of us might get a little bit nervous when we see Paul saying that this history of Hagar and Sarah and Abraham's two sons can be interpreted allegorically. Historically, allegorical interpretation has been used either to avoid or deny the grammatical or textual historical meaning of Scripture or to import creative meanings into Scripture, which the Holy Spirit never intended to put there. But that's not what Paul is doing here as he tells us that these things are allegorically speaking. Paul's not avoiding or denying the, the history of Genesis. And by and large, Paul is using this allegory here more to illustrate his doctrine rather than to prove his doctrine. Paul has already made his point in the book of Galatians that those under the law are under bondage. And what Paul's doing then is he's using this history from the book of Genesis allegorically allegorically and figuratively to, to illustrate and flesh out the point that he has already made. And so he says there in Galatians 4, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The law, in this case, is the Old Testament narrative that tells us Abraham had two sons, one born to the bondwoman, Hagar, one born to the free woman, Sarah. And there's a, a contrast between the two. Isaac is born through the promise. Ishmael is born according to the flesh. Ishmael is the result of Abraham's trying to take matters into his own hands, trying to bring the purposes of God to pass using human wisdom and human endeavor. Isaac, on the other hand, is born to Sarah, the barren woman, in the miraculous fulfillment of what God had promised beforehand. And according to Paul, these two women, Hagar and Sarah, are representative of, of two covenants. One covenant is legal, one covenant is gracious. Hagar represents the legal covenant, the covenant given by Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the covenant that says, He who practices the commandments shall live by them. This is also the covenant that said, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This legal covenant brings bondage. And this is why Paul can say, that Hagar proceeds from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. The woman Hagar and Mount Sinai, he said, correspond to the present-day Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem in Paul's day. In Paul's day, Jerusalem was, by and large, still in bondage to the Mosaic Law. The temple was still standing. The sacrifices, which could never take away sins, were still being offered. 
And most of the people in that city had rejected the gospel, had rejected Christ, who alone brings freedom. This is why Paul could say that the present Jerusalem and her children were still in bondage, were still in bondage to the law. Sarah, on the other hand, he says, is a representative of the gracious covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham, the unconditional promise of God that all nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And Paul had already told us in Galatians 3.16 that this promise finds its fulfillment in one singular seed, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Hagar corresponded to Mount Sinai in Jerusalem in Paul's day, so also Sarah corresponds to a Jerusalem as well. Not the earthly Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, which Paul says is our mother. And Paul says in Galatians 4.28 that we, as Christians, are children of the promise, like Isaac. We, as believers in Christ, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. Indeed, in Romans 9.7, Paul quotes the words of Genesis 21.12, those words, through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And he quotes it there to make the point that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. And so this birth of Isaac and the sending away of Ishmael then should remind us of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and that these blessings are completely dependent on the grace and promise of God. All of us who belong to Christ are like Isaac. We're the children of Abraham through faith. We're heirs according to the promise of God. And in this, we are reminded that the plans and promises of God turn human wisdom on its head. Right? We saw where Abraham got with human wisdom. The gospel turns human wisdom on his head. This is because in the gospel, God accomplishes for us what we could not accomplish in our own strength, and God accomplishes it in a way that we would not expect. And this is very offensive to our human pride because we naturally want to, to bring something to the table. We want to be someone acceptable to God. We want to do something to help God keep his promise, as, as Abraham did. Abraham tried in his own strength to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But God's wisdom was far different. And God's wisdom is far different from our own. And therefore Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 1. and says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God has chosen the base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just as Abraham couldn't boast in the fulfillment, the promise of Isaac being born, so we too, in Christ, are children of the promise and we have nothing to boast about because our salvation is completely dependent upon the promise of God, completely dependent upon the work of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Our Lord who was sent to earth by the Father, who became incarnate for us and for our salvation, who died on the cross as a ransom for sinners, who rose on the third day for sinners. This is not the wisdom of the world, but this is the wisdom of God. And this wisdom of God in Christ is my only hope this morning. And this wisdom of God in Christ is your only hope this morning as well. Now, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, obviously you know this. You know that Christ is your only hope, that he is your only hope for receiving the forgiveness of sins, your only hope for eternal life, your only hope for living a holy life here and now. And so, in light of that, place all of your hope and all of your expectation for these things in Christ. Trust in him and live for him. Do what what he commands. And I want you to know that if you're here this morning and you have never yet trusted in Christ, that this wisdom of God in Christ, God's plan to save sinners by the death of his son, is actually your only hope as well. You might not know it, but it actually is your only hope. I realize that maybe you're here this morning and you think you're doing okay, that life's not all that bad, death seems a long way off, and maybe you're not even concerned about dying and what comes afterwards anyways. But the fact of the matter is that there is a judgment that is coming. Friend, there is a judgment that is coming. It's a judgment in which you will have to give an account of yourself, an account of your life to God. You'll have to stand before the holy judge of all of the earth, the holy judge whose standard is complete righteousness. And you'll be found guilty for all of your sins, great or small, unless you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't want to be in that situation on the day of judgment. I don't want you to be in that situation on the day of judgment. Nobody here wants you to be in that situation on the day of judgment. The only remedy is to turn to Christ, to trust in Him, to believe upon Him and repent of your sins. If you have more questions about what that means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We'd be happy to tell you more about how you too can be a child of the promise, how you too can be a believer in Christ and therefore be the recipient of all of these great and magnificent promises which we've been considering this morning, these promises which our God will in his own time bring to fulfillment. Now, let's look ahead to the the closing verses of the chapter, verses 22 through 34. Now, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, and you did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until the day. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean? which you have set by themselves. He said, 
You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now these verses bring us to our final point this morning in which we see Abraham making uh, civil arrangements with potentially pagan authorities. And I say potentially pagan authorities just to add a, a layer of charity in the absence of absolute certainty concerning the state of the soul of Abimelech. This is, uh, I think, presumably the same Abimelech that we saw last week in chapter 20, who treated Abraham well despite the fraud of Abraham and passing off Sarah as his sister. Abimelech's reference in verse 23 to the, the kindness with which he had treated Abraham, I think is likely a reference to the gifts which Abimelech had given to Abraham and the permission that he had given uh, to Abraham to, to dwell in his land wherever he pleased. And so there had seemingly been interaction between these two men. And on this occasion, Abimelech comes to Abraham with his army commander and desires to enter into a covenant with Abraham, a covenant in which they would deal faithfully with one another. And since Abraham had the ear of the king, he brings to his attention this matter of this well, this well that Abraham had dug that had been seized by the servants of Abimelech, and Abimelech denies any knowledge of the situation there in verse 26. And so when it comes time to, to cut this covenant for them to enter into it and ratify it, Abraham sets apart these seven ewes of the flock to give to Abimelech. And Abimelech's acceptance of them would be the sign that he recognized that Abraham had dug the well and therefore had rights to the well. So the covenant was ratified. They named the place Beersheba, which means uh, well of seven, or perhaps also well of the oath. And Abimelech returns to his place, and Abraham continues to sojourn in the land. He planted a tree. I'm all for planting trees. And he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, at a first glance, this might seem to be a bit of a puzzling narrative. It's not so much puzzling in that we can't understand what is going on here, because I think we actually can get a a reasonably good idea of what was taking place, but it's a little bit puzzling in the sense of why. Why is this narrative even here? Why does Moses take roughly one-third of the space of chapter 21 to tell us this? These narratives about Abraham often have a deep theological significance to them. We have in them God's promise to Abraham concerning the plan of salvation, which Paul called the, the gospel being preached beforehand. Genesis 12, we have in Genesis 15, justification by faith. We have the covenant of circumcision, Genesis 17. We have Abraham's failures in connection with his marriage to Sarah in Genesis 12 and 20. We have his failure with Hagar in chapter 16 and the follow-up here in chapter 21. In chapter 22, we have the command to sacrifice Isaac, foreshadowing the great sacrifice of Christ. But why this? Why this, this covenant with a king and this quarrel about a well? Now, that's a good question, and I'm not sure that I have the final answer to it this morning, but what I would say 
is that at the very least, we see in this the fulfillment of the promise of the Lord to Abraham that he would make his name great. Genesis 12, 2. Abraham appears here as a powerful chieftain, a force to be reckoned with, so to speak. God was with him, and Abimelech knew it. He wanted to be on the same side as Abraham, and he wanted Abraham to deal faithfully with him, not falsely with him or with his descendants. And Abraham agrees, and at the same time, as part of the bargain, Abraham secures the right to this well that is rightfully his. And so the Lord had blessed Abraham. The Lord had made his name great. And in this, I think, we also see something of an example of how to go about navigating secular agreements, if you want to call it that. This is not a religious covenant. This is not a a covenant in which they are covenanting together to worship God, but they're simply making an agreement about how they're going to conduct themselves toward one another. And that's okay. These kind of agreements with at least potentially pagan people are more or less a necessity in the world that we live in. Unless you work for an explicitly Christian organization or an explicitly Christian individual, the terms of your employment are going to be terms that you agree to with someone who is at least potentially a pagan person or a pagan organization. And if you're in business for yourself, you're going to encounter these types of situations. You're going to be entering into contractual agreements with potentially pagan people. If you sign a lease or take out a mortgage or put your money out at interest in buying a CD from a bank or something like that, you're going to be in the same kind of situation. And that's all right. Paul says that we would have to go out of the world if we were to have absolutely no associations with the wicked, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And when we enter into those kind of agreements, we need to make sure that we're faithful in doing our part of the agreement. If Abraham uh, dealt falsely subsequently with Abimelech, Abimelech would have uh, had great reason to hold his feet to the fire and say, Abraham, we made a covenant. What's, what's the deal here? You, you have dealt falsely with me. When we enter into these kind of agreements, we need to make sure that we're faithful to do our part. We have to pay the bills that are ours or provide the goods or services that we have pledged to render or, or whatever. And just as a matter of, of practical wisdom, we observe here how Abraham capitalized on the covenant-making situation to make sure he got the rights to this well that he had dug. Now, whether or not Abraham should have spoken up sooner is perhaps an open question, but in any case, he had the golden opportunity here to say something and to have it baked into the covenant that he is actually the owner of this well. He didn't just roll over and play dead when someone else had taken what was rightfully his. When he had this opportunity to talk to Abimelech about it and he had the opportunity to get things settled right, he did it. And there are sometimes... Likewise, in our lives, opportune moments to bring up our concerns and to press for our rights, and it is fitting to do so in those moments. And so when it's contract-making time, that's the time to get things spelled out explicitly in the agreement. You don't want to just assume you're getting four weeks of vacation when the contract doesn't say it. You better, better have that spelled out if that's what you're expecting. Now, obviously, these incidentals about navigating agreements, not the main point of the passage, but they do form for us an example of how a godly and blessed man conducted business and engaged in the, in the civil realm. And as such, we can surely stand to learn from it. But at the broader level, we see here once again 
the fulfillment of God's promise. Promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. He had said that he would bless Abraham, that he would make his name great, and he did so. And Abimelech knew it. And though it may seem like a small thing, we might be tempted to dismiss this as an insignificant narrative. Nevertheless, it is once again a piece of the pattern that we've seen. Promise and fulfillment. Again, God keeps his word. We can trust him to do so. Let's trust and let's obey. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that you are the faithful God, that you keep your promises, that you do what is just and right and good. And we praise you that you fulfill your promises. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would join Abraham in being strengthened in the faith and giving glory to you. And uh, we give thanks for your word and how it testifies to us of your faithfulness. We pray that you would build us up in Christ, that you would help us, that we would grow up in all things into him who is the head. We give praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.